Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, and I do hope that you do, Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs chapter 18 is where we're going to be this morning. And uh, we're continuing our series, Small Thing, Small Things, Big Difference. Small Things, Big Difference. And before we even get into the message today, um, I want to let you know, uh, we've been doing this now for a few weeks, actually probably a couple months, um, after service, uh, we're going to have our normal invitation time. And what that's going to do is give you an opportunity to respond to what God might be speaking to you on during the message, how God has moved in some way. Uh, some of you may be here this morning and already uh, have spent time with God in prayer. Uh, many of you know that we have down the hallway here uh, to the left, we have our gap room. Uh, this is a, a place where you can go uh, before service uh, from about 9.30, so right before service starts. It's a, a room that's set aside just for prayer. And you go in there, whether by yourself, maybe you go with a spouse, maybe you go with a friend, a family member, whatever, and you just spend some time in prayer to kind of prepare your hearts for the message. Um, I want to encourage you, uh, the nursery uh, usually there's a nursery worker in there by 10:15. Most of our classrooms, uh, for the kids that are at this end of the building, the younger ones, most of our leaders are usually there a little bit before service starts. And so if you are a parent that has a small child that's like, I would love to go to the prayer room, but I can't just let my kid run crazy in the church, then you could take your child to that room. If the teacher is there, our teachers are more than willing to watch that child or be with that child uh, until class starts so that you're able to go and spend time in prayer. But maybe you've already done that this morning. Maybe you've prayed before we got here today. After service, we're going to give you another opportunity to respond to what God is doing. And in so doing, you can come forward. There's going to be a time of invitation. You can pray, again, individually with someone. Uh, But maybe you want to pray with someone that isn't a family member, that isn't directly connected to that situation. Uh, After service, there'll be some people up in the front row here, uh, men and women, If you're a woman, you want to pray with another woman or a man with another man, you can come and do that. We're going to also have available these prayer encouragement cards. So these prayer encouragement cards, they're the ones on these little clipboards here. If you have a prayer concern that you're praying for this morning, what's going to happen is this is going to go directly to our Wednesday night prayer group. This does not go on the prayer guide. This does not go on the prayer chain. This is specifically for our Wednesday night prayer group. Every Wednesday night, we meet with our adults. We do a Bible study, and we have prayer. We'll pray through some of the things in the prayer guide. We'll take prayer requests. But we want to specifically pray within a few days of what you're going through. And so if you're interested in doing something like that, you can fill one of these cards out. If you come forward to pray it during invitation, you can do that by yourself. Or one of the individuals that you would see in the front row, myself, my wife Sandra, some other individuals, We would love to fill that out with you, all right? So I want to make sure we share that this morning uh, before we get going into the message. Also, I want to let you know that as we're talking about this idea of small changes, big differences, small changes, big differences, this message is one of those ones that I want to let you know on the onset, I don't have it all figured out, okay? I'm, I'm not preaching to you from perfection. I'm not preaching to you from I've done this and I'm doing this perfectly in my life. I'm preaching to you as someone that is striving by God's grace and with the encouragement of God's people that I can hope, hopefully do this consistently in my life, okay? So I want you to know in the onset, this topic might be tough for some of us. It might hit a little too close to home for some of us. I want you to know it, hit homes with, it hits home with me. It's something that I'm continually praying for wisdom on and hopefully, and again, by God's grace, improving in. And I I wanted to say that because sometimes we go to church and we hear a pastor or a preacher, and if you're visiting with us this morning, maybe you've had this experience, that preaches this message, and it's all about how you need to be perfect. You need to be like the pastor. 
I meet with some pastor friends every now and then, and we talk and stuff. And one of the things we talk about is how the image of the church of the pastor is so much different than the pastor's true identity sometimes. Now, I know that we as pastors need to strive to be above reproach. The Bible is very clear on that, and we do strive to do that. But as a pastor, I want to let you know we're not perfect. We don't preach to you like we got it all figured out. And you might say, oh, I can't believe as a pastor you're admitting that. The Apostle Paul said towards the end of his life, what did he say? He said, I've not, I've not arrived, right? I'm not, I'm not there yet. I'm figuring this out. But I do know this one thing, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward to the things that are before. So as we talk about the idea of small differences, small changes, big differences, as we're continuing through this journey together, I want us to move into considering the words that we speak. The words that we speak, which kind of brings me to our key thought for the sermon series. Our key thought for the last couple weeks has been, it's often the small things that no one sees that results in the big things that everyone wants. It's often the small things that no one sees that results in the big things that everyone wants. Proverbs chapter 18, look at verse 21. Proverbs 18 and verse 21. It says this. It's one of those verses that you read it and you go, well, yeah, duh. You ever have a duh moment reading scripture? Anybody ever a duh moment? Two hands went up. Two hands. Y'all need to read more Bible. That's what needs to happen. Okay? Because if you read the Bible and you don't go, oh, yeah, then uh, you're not being honest with yourself. Okay? Proverbs 18.21, look what it says. Death and life, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer as we ask God to speak to us in this topic of the words we speak. Father God, we thank you for this morning. Father, we thank you for your grace and love in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would lead, guide, and direct as only you can. That, Lord, as we gather together, as we worship you, that you would be the one we look to for wisdom, guidance, and clarity. That this area of the words we speak is so vital to being a disciple and a follower of Christ. It's the, to be honest, really one of the more obvious ways that we can show people that we are a follower of Christ. Lord, nobody in this room has it figured out perfectly. But I thank you for those in this room that have walked with you, that have journeyed with you, that have grown in this area, that I can look to as an example. Those that I've been able to listen to and and to watch for, for a time that have strived to do this well. But Lord, I pray that behind all of this, While we talk about striving to achieve this and working at doing this, I pray that behind all of it, we would not forget it is your grace. It is your Holy Spirit that gives us the strength and the ability to do these things. And so we're going to talk about putting effort into things. We're going to talk about thinking about what we say and how we say it and why we say it. We're going to think about those things and talk about those things, but I pray that we would not forget that it is not my ability that's going to give me success in this area or my my self-control, if you will, apart from the working of the Holy Spirit. And I love that one of the key gifts 
of the Holy Spirit, which are brought into our life at the moment of salvation, the fruits that he talks about there is that ability to have self-control. And so, Father, I pray you'd give us wisdom in this area because it makes a huge difference in our life and in the life of others. Father, thank you for all that you're doing, and thank you for the small things that we can begin today. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So as we read these words here, we talked last week about your thoughts, the power of your thoughts, and your thoughts are powerful. And we gave you two practical steps last week, two really easy things. The first thing we have to do to get our thought life where it needs to be is we have to capture destructive thoughts, right? We capture destructive thoughts. And we talked about this even on Wednesday night. It kind of was cool. It kind of tied into a talk we had there. But when we capture destructive thoughts, we have to identify this thought is either destroying to me or destroying to someone else. It's destructive. It's going to tear down. So I'm going to identify that. I'm going to capture that. Then once I capture that thought to the obedience of Christ, I'm going to fix my thoughts, fix my mind on spiritual things, on heavenly things. So I'm going to capture destructive thoughts. Then I'm going to fix my thoughts. I'm going to make sure my focus and my thoughts is on the things of above, not on the things below. We talked Wednesday night about fear and anxiety. Let's just be honest for a second, okay? And I got a feeling hopefully more than two hands go up because y'all need to stop lying in church, okay? (laughs) Just kidding. I'm sure nobody lied intentionally. Okay, so (laughs) two people got that joke too. Okay, so how many of you would say you had anxiety this week in some shape or form? Raise your hand. Some kind of anxiety, anxious thought, something. Okay, for some of us, it was momentary. It was just a passing thought, a concern. But some of us, we dwelt on that, and we let it start to take root in our thinking. We let it take root in our thoughts. And then we're laying awake at night thinking on this thing. We talked Wednesday night, and as a follow-up to Sunday, when we capture those anxious thoughts, we all have them. We all have them. But when you have that anxious thought, and when you capture it, how do I capture an anxious thought? I realize who my God is. I realize that I can control the things I can control, but he ultimately is control of everything. So I take control of that. Hey, this is what I'm responsible for, but I submit to his supreme authority. He is sovereign. He is in charge. And I pray. I pray. And I say, God, you're in control of this. You have to lead in this. You have to take care of this. See, that's how we fix our thoughts on the things above. It doesn't mean we're never going to have an anxious thought again. We, we all are susceptible to that. We've all had anxious thoughts or, or worries that come up or you don't know how you're going to pay for this or you don't know what's going to happen there. But as we said before, we have to take control for what we can take control of. And we give God the control of the rest of it and say, God, this is all yours. And so as we talk about our thoughts, we understand those things. If we talk about our words, it's very similar understanding. I want to be very practical today. But when you look in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, What is he saying here? What is Solomon really writing here? He says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. We talked about it last week. Sometimes we can read verses like this and people will turn them into other things. But what is he actually saying to his audience, saying to those that will receive wisdom? When we speak to others or ourselves, some of us need to get this. When we speak to others or when we speak to ourselves, we have to ask what kind of words are we speaking? What kind of things are we saying? Are we imparting life or are we imparting death? Now it sounds really extreme that you can say death and life are in our words. It sounds extreme, 
But that's the best illustration the wisest man apart from Christ could give us to express the power of our words. Now, obviously, this is not literal, right? This is not literally saying I can speak someone into life and speak someone out of life. There's only one that can do that, and that's God, right? Think about this. The word of God is so powerful, it spoke everything into creation. And just that quickly, it could speak something out of creation. Think about the power of the word of God. When Jesus was in the garden, one of the most amazing moments when the officers come and they're, they're coming to arrest Christ, what does Jesus ask them? Who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. The original language says, I am. What happens to those soldiers? As soon as he speaks the word, I am, they fall to the ground. Just the sheer power of God's word. And he says, I've imparted to you the ability to use words. Now, we're not speaking things into creation and out of creation because, again, some of you would, your communities would be smaller, okay? You would be like, you're gone, and you're gone, and you're gone. And that's just what we're going to do in Columbus, Ohio, okay? So we're going to, as we move even farther north, it gets worse, okay? Okay, anyway, so it's not literal, okay? We're not literally, but what is Solomon saying? Why is he using this illustration? Because the Bible is clear. The words we speak can either build up and give life, or we can tear down and take life. Not literally, but man, figuratively, we've all felt some words that felt like death. Solomon's point is simple. Are our words life-giving or life-taking? Building up or tearing down? Encouraging or discouraging? Proverbs 12, 18. I'm just going to read it, but another example of this from the book of Proverbs. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 12, 18. And listen to the word. The words of the reckless pierce like swords. You ever have a word pierce you? You ever have, have somebody say something and it just, you don't know why or how, but it just pierces into you? The biggest lie we told our kids that I was told as a kid, and we've said this before, is sticks and stones may break my bones, which that's kind of morbid, isn't it? Here, little Susie, who is six, sticks and stones will break your bones. Okay, that poor little girl's going to go to school and see a stick and be terrified. Like, I'm not touching that. It will break my bones, okay? Who's throwing stones and breaking bones in elementary school? That's what I want to know. Like, where do you go to school that that's a problem, okay? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never... Man, isn't that the biggest lie we've ever told? Man, words hurt. We talked about this a little bit back in the summer during our Conversations with God series. And I told you that words you speak have instant power. Here's an example. Following the service today, and I said this back in the summer, but it's still true. Following the service today, you could say one thing to me that will completely annihilate me for the rest of the afternoon. You could say one thing to me after service that will just, just crush me for the rest of the afternoon. Just leave me waiting like, oh, man, what a, oh, I can't believe that. I won't show it outwardly because really good as adults doing what? 
usually keeping that stuff in. But you go home and you slouch in your chair and you're just like, I can't believe they said that. And the reason is because if they said it, they must think it. And if they think it, that must be how they really feel about me. See, one thing. Or you could say one thing to someone today that completely lifts them up and they just, they're so encouraged. They go home and they're like, you'll never believe what so-and-so said to me. You'll never believe how so, man, you're not going to believe this. I've told you guys, I've gotten cards and phone calls and things from the church that, man, it blows me away how encouraging our church is. Seriously. I, I'm a little biased, okay? But I got to believe we're the most encouraging church I've ever been a part of, just being real. Seriously. Even in college when I attended a church there, there was encouraging people and the college director was great. Him and his wife were awesome, okay? Just amazing people. But as a whole, I, I didn't get cards or encouraging words from most people in the church. I got, the college kids were okay. I mean, the, the leaders in the college group were okay. But, but man, when I hear people come and say, you're never going to believe what so-and-so said to me. Or I got this from so-and-so. Or, I got a text from so-and-so. I got a call from so-and-so. Man, that gives life. That brings healing, by the way. That's what Proverbs says. But just as equally true, the words you speak can be like a sword or an arrow that pierces through. Have you ever been pierced through by a word? Have you ever been comforted by a word? There's power in the tongue. We're not going to go there for time's sake, um, all of the text, but we're going to read from James 3 in just a minute there. So if you want to turn there, you can. But James 3 is a beautiful passage and one that speaks very heavily of the tongue. But I want to look at some keys that we must understand, some key things that we can kind of lock in on with our words because small changes to the words we speak will result in the big difference in our lives. Small changes to the words we speak will result in the big differences in our lives. Here's the truth. If you want to change the life you have, you need to change the words you speak. If you want to change the life you have, you need to change the words you speak. Not saying, like we said last week, not taking it out of context. Oh, I, I'm never going to get sick because I only speak health into my life. I'm always going to be wealthy because I speak wealth into my life. That's not what we're saying. You can find that junk on TV and in all kinds of bookstores. Oprah has her own channel now. You can find all of that you want on her channel. It's not in the Bible. It doesn't mean I speak health so I'm only ever healthy. What I'm saying is if you want to change the way of life that you live, the perspective on your life, when good comes and when bad comes, you've got to change the words you speak. Not just, again, to others, but also to yourself. So we have to understand our words are powerful. Our words to others make a big difference. What you say matters and affects other people, whether we like it or not. What you say matters and affects other people, whether you like it or not. As followers of Christ, we must realize the truth that our words are either fresh or bitter. Our words are either fresh or bitter, but they should not be both. Go over to James. You're already there. Probably would help if I turn there. James. Let me get there now. Hang on. Okay, James chapter 3 and verse 10. It says here, Out of the same mouth proceeds, proceeds blessing and cursing. 
My brother, in these things ought not so to be. Does a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? I mean, isn't that just such a practical illustration? Again, duh. Right? Like just, it's common sense, but it's really not. James is so clear. Hey, you can't have both. You can't say it's this and this. You can't speak out of both sides of your mouth, basically. The truth of James 3, 10 through 11 is simple. Are your words, are my words a mixture of both? Are we allowing the culture of the world to dictate to us how we should speak to others? Man, we have got to be on guard against that. The culture is not just attacking the way you think. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is so key. It's not just attacking the way you think, but it's attacking the way you speak. Culture says it's okay to tear somebody down who tore you down. Culture says it's okay to criticize somebody who did a poor job when you disagree with them. Culture says it's okay to tear down that person or to criticize this person or to make fun of this person. Culture says that. But the word of God is clear. Our words must be different. And it's so concerning to me, not just in my own life, but in the life of the church, the life of Christians in America, when you look at some of the statistics on the differences between saved and unsaved, those that are in the church and claim to know Jesus Christ, not just talking about those that say, oh, I'm a Christian because I go to church, but the actual people who say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and the regular people in the world who don't know Christ, the differences between those two groups is not as vastly different as we'd like to imagine. And one of the key areas that I see, it's not verbal, it's it's in type or in print, not just from things like social media, but letters we get to the church from just different ministries, things that I read in articles, things that Christians are saying. Man, it's just so harsh. It's so, and I'm not talking about not being hard on sin, but the, the attacks that people have against other people. It is ridiculous. And then we'll get into a pulpit and preach the love of Christ. It doesn't make any sense. We'll share with our neighbor the love of Christ, but then tear down the other neighbor who is treating us like crap. We'll tell our neighbor or our one coworker, man, you need to know Jesus Christ, and you go tell your other coworker how much your manager sucks. And when the coworker you're telling about Christ, here's you criticizing your employer, what is he thinking? Oh, well, if, I mean, then I guess it's okay. I've told you guys, I've, I've worked out in the retail, retail. I've worked in cus, customer service. I've done that stuff. And I know it's so tempting, and I've fallen into the trap. I've done it. I've been there. I've been in a back room, in a storage room, and ripped on the, the owner. I, I've, been, I've fallen into it. You walk into a group, they're all ripping on this guy, you just jump in. And then you realize, wait, what's the difference? There isn't one. So when I start preaching Christ... Where's the impact? The words we speak to others matter. And I, I don't understand it, why we allow culture in. By the way, the words you speak to your spouse matter. The words you speak to your kids matter. And I'm telling you guys, again, I'm learning this with you. The words you speak to your parents matter. Those of us that are older, that have parents that are still with us, you think because you're out from under their roof, you can just talk to them however you want? Anyone in here that's a teenager? I worked in youth ministry, been there. I had a student tell me one time, I argue with my parents because they're always wrong. That's what they said. 
And I said, no, 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 no. They very much could be wrong. You never argue with your parents. You never argue with your parents. What they were wrong. I don't care. What does that have to do with anything? They're your parent. You honor them. I'll tell you one thing. Listen, if you have children, young children or teenagers, if I see them do this to you, please don't be offended, but I'm going to say something, okay? Just, here's my, if you don't like it, come tell me. Don't talk to my kids. I'll leave your kids alone. But if I see a child, I've done this. And it's not because I think I'm perfect or my kid. If you see my kids doing this and I'm not addressing it, you talk to them. I have a very hard time when I see a child raise their voice or yell at their parents. I have a hard time with that. I'm not talking about to jump all over them and yell at them. No, you need to talk to that child and say, excuse me, this is your parent. Honor them. You don't need to raise your voice to them. That's not right. Because see, the words we speak matter. Whether it's you're an adult and your parent is much older, whether you have a child, whether it's your spouse, whether it's a coworker, we have to think about these things. Like, well, why am I saying this? What's motivating me to say this? I'm telling you, culture and the world will influence so much of the way we think and how we speak. And it just drives me crazy, especially when you see how marriage is portrayed on TV and how couples speak to each other on a, on a sitcom and how they just rip on each other and rip on each other. Now, listen, I'm not talking about good ripping like fun sarcasm in a marriage. But there's a big difference between two people that are joking with one another that have established where the lines are. Hear me now. In a marriage, understand, this is joking. This is not. Okay? Some of us, we try to use this to say something we can't say over here. Okay? So if there's, I'm not talking about joking and teasing and all, that's all fine and good. As long as it's understood, this is what it is in the marriage. But if I'm doing something that's purposely trying to hurt my spouse's feelings or hurt my child's feelings just to be mean to them, I'm going to think about that and say, wait a minute, why? Because culture says it's okay. The words we speak to others matter. But also, the words we speak to ourselves matter. I know we went from Proverbs to James, and you're going to love this, go all the way back to 1 Samuel. Go all the way back to 1 Samuel. And I know you're thinking, really? You got us all the way here? Yes, I did. Go all the way to 1 Samuel. Chapter 30. Simple little verse, but I had to go here to read it. 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 6. The words we speak to others matter, but the words we speak to ourselves matter as well. Simple moment in David's life. 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 6. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved. Every man for his sons and for his daughters But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. David encouraged himself. You know what it means to encourage yourself? When I read that, I think about he spoke to himself. He was talking to himself. Anybody talk to yourself? Self-talkers, raise your hand. How many do it audibly, out loud? How many do it when other people in their home and you confuse people in the home? You talking to me? Okay, yeah, okay. No, I was just talking to myself. No. No, you were talking to the room, okay? We all heard you, okay? 
So when you read this verse here, I love this moment in David's life. David, when you read the context, David and his men had never lost a battle up to this point. Now their city is burned, their wealth had been confiscated, and their wives and children kidnapped. Think about that. City burned, wealth confiscated, wives and children are kidnapped. And when it says David was greatly distressed in the original language, it is a verb that means he was pressed into a tight corner. Listen, he says, I was greatly distressed. We read that in the King James and we think, oh, that's such a spiritual way to be going through something. It literally means pressed into a tight corner. Think about how would that feel? You're just pressed down. I mean, just everything is closing in around you. Nothing is like it should be. His men wore themselves out, the text tells us, from weeping. And David is unsure what to do. His own wives have been taken. His men are heartbroken. He is distressed. He is pressed down. And David, in this crazy moment, encourages himself in the Lord. He chose to speak to himself, encouraging things of who God is. And then you're going to go on, and he ends up praying and saying, God, what do you want me to do? God, should I go or do I not go? What do I do? And I love this moment in David's life. He's got everything going wrong. Everything's falling down around him. Nothing is good. And he stops. He reminds himself, wait, wait, wait. And now it's not in this text. It's in the New Testament. But I can imagine David basically telling himself, no, God, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Great, you're greater than this. You're, you've got a plan and a purpose. What do you have for me in this moment? Then he doesn't just talk to himself about it. He what? He talks to God about it. Do you see how David is fulfilling future scripture? He encourages himself. What does Paul say in the book of Philippians? Don't be anxious, Right? But by everything through prayer, make your request be made known unto God. What does David do? He, he takes that anxious moment. He speaks to himself, reminds himself of who God is. Then he gives it to God. What do you want me to do? And then whatever God says, he just does. We always wonder, man, why was David so blessed? What made David a man after God's own heart? It wasn't being perfect. It wasn't living sinless. It was his willingness to submit to God's leadership. It was willingness to say, I'm going to by faith, trust in you. He remembered himself, who he was in the Lord. He told himself, no, this is who I am in God. We have to understand that while it is important to speak life-giving words to others, it is crucial we speak life-giving words to ourselves. Not the fluff that the self-help books sell you. Not this, you stand in the mirror and tell yourself you're the best every day, 50 times in a day. That's not what we're talking about. You're the best. No one's better than you. There was an SNL skit. I think it was SNL. I can't remember the guy's name, but he starts looking in a mirror, and he's like, you're special, you're great, and gosh darn it, people love you, or something like this. And then he turns and faces the camera, and like, hey there, friends. And it's this really cheesy, like, self-help kind of thing. I think about that sometimes when I listen to certain preachers on TV. <laughs> Just being real with you. Because I heard one say, start off every day looking in the mirror, telling yourself, you are strong. You are good enough. You're going to get that job. You're going to get that promotion. You're, you're better than that. You are wealthy. Don't speak these other things into your life. What does Paul say? I'm going to boast in what? 
the cross. I'm going to boast in the fact that I am weak, but he is strong because his strength is made perfect in weakness. So it's not this stuff about trying to convince yourself you're the best. Because, by the way, in your field, you might be really good, but you're probably not the best. Okay? Now, when I get up in the morning and say, you're the best preacher, I mean, that's kind of obvious. So, I mean, in that, we take a little bit of an exception, okay? It's a little bit of a difference there. But for those of you in different fields, it's different for you, I'm sure. When you think about it, it's just silliness that we do. I mean, that's not what the Bible's saying. It's not saying, remind yourself how awesome you are. What did he do? He encouraged himself in the Lord. He reminded himself how awesome God is. And then he remembered that God is my father. And so if God is in this and he's in control of this, I don't have to worry what's going to happen to me because I'm not strong enough. Do you know why David conquered Goliath? It wasn't because he was strong enough. It wasn't because he had the best aim of all the other people that were auditioning for the role. It was because he realized what he told the Israelites, is there not a cause? Is there not a God that is, we're going to let this guy mock our God? There's no way. See, the story of David and Goliath isn't by your strength you can overcome any giants. That's what some people want to sell you. The story of David and Goliath is a mission story. There is one God. There is only one God. And David just submitted himself and said, I'll go. I'm not, I'm not afraid of Goliath. My God is with me. I am more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. That's, again, future scripture coming true in the Old Testament. He says, man, I know who I am. When you find yourself in a situation that God allows in your life that you cannot handle, you remind yourself not who you are, but who your God is, and that you are in Christ complete. So no matter what happens, you are content. That's the words we speak to ourselves. Not you're the best. No one's better. It's man, God, you are my God. And I know I can't overcome this, but you can. I know you've given me strength to endure this. I pray I would trust in that. So what kind of words are you speaking, life-giving or life-taking to others or to yourself? Last week, we did a thought audit. So I want you to just kind of do this with me. It's a lot simpler. So basically, when you're thinking about this idea of a word audit, a word audit. Last week was our thoughts. This week is our words. So we're going to basically put life-taking words, life-giving words, two ends, of the side, or two ends on each side. You've got others and self, others and self. One through ten. Life-taking words with others. A one would be, I'm taking from them. I'm robbing them with my words. I'm criticizing them, condemning. I'm discouraging them. Life-giving words would be a 10. I'm, I'm imparting, trying to, by God's grace, to impart words of encouragement, words of love and support. By the way, that doesn't mean, this is where people think, well, yeah, but wait a minute now. What if somebody sins? I got to be critical of that, don't I? Okay, here's the difference, and I've said this for years. Be a coach, not a critic. A coach has to tell their players what they need to do to be better, to be the best player they can be. A coach has to say something we don't want to hear, but we need to hear. And a coach would say it with encouragement, support. There's a relationship. We trust this person. We know their heart is for us. But a critic says what they need to tell us so that we're more like what they want us to be like. A coach, hey, I want to make you the best player you can be. Here's some things that will help you. Here's some things you're doing good. Here's some things you can improve on. I love you. 
I'm here for you. I'm going to demonstrate it for you. I'm going to support you through this journey. A critic says, hey, you're doing this, this, and this wrong, and you need to change that because I think you need to be like this. I think you should be like that. I'll just be honest with you guys. Transparent moment. Years ago, I used to get a letter almost weekly from someone that would write me criticizing things about my messages, my ministry, how I preached, how I led, everything. Article after article highlighted things. I, th- I thought you would find this interesting, and it's an article on something that this person told me a letter about how I screwed it up and then highlighted all the things I should be doing different. And I used to dig through those things and try to find that nugget of truth. Okay, there's something good in here. Lord, there's got to be something good in here. And then I heard an illustration that if, if you're really, really hungry, I mean, if you're almost starving and you need to eat something, if you dove through a dumpster long enough, you'd probably find something you could eat. Not really what you want to eat, but it would be something. But if you're really, really hungry, what's the better choice, to go dive, dive, in, or dive in through a dumpster or just go to the grocery store where you know you can find good something, something that's going to be giving you nutrition no value? See, so many of us do this. We have critics in our life, and they try to feed in, and we, just, we try to look for that little nugget of truth. No. Why? I've always told people, why do they have influence in your life? Who are they? Have you given them this influence? If you haven't, you can control that, by the way. You control who you allow to speak into your life. And if you have a critic that's trying to speak life-taking words into your life that has no interest in you, no heart for you, and no heart for God to be glorified in your life, you need to stop listening to that person. You need to find yourself some coaches that have a love for God and a love for you and say, this is what I see God doing in your life. And man, I believe it can be great for you. Let's walk this journey together. Let's encourage one another because listen, I'm there too. And that's what we need. So when you think about this idea of, I'm not saying when somebody sins and you're talking to them, it's not like we ignore that. We address that. We need to. That's loving, by the way. But we approach it as a coach not a critic. Now, the person hearing it might think this is critical. I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear that I'm doing wrong. That's understandable. We're patient with them. We're gracious with them. But we keep reminding them this is what God's word says. And then guess what? Here's the kicker. We let them make their own choice. The coach can't go out on the field and run the plays for the players. Okay? I'm sure no one in here that's ever coached has ever stood on the sideline and said, man, I could do that way better than they're doing it. Okay? No matter what level. The coach, no, the coach just creates the best environment for that person to succeed and has to step back and say, okay, now you need to apply these things. And then I'm here when you do it well, and I'm here when you do it poorly to help you learn from that and walk this out. And so my encouragement to you is find a coach. Be a coach that's speaking life-giving words into someone's life. Yes, at times it might seem critical to the person receiving it, but remind them your motivation for sharing it. How about to yourself? Are you a life-giving words to everyone else and to yourself you're super critical? Doesn't mean we don't evaluate and think, oh, man, I need to improve this area. That's fine. But if you're one of those people that I'm the worst thing ever, I'm this and this and this and this, and it's just tear down, tear down, tear down, then you're not encouraging yourself in the Lord because God doesn't think that of you. He says, no, 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 if you are in Christ, you are my son, my daughter. You are a holy, beloved, chosen child of God. And you are mine, and I am yours. And yes, we need to work on this area, and we need to work on this area. If you ever get to the point where you think God is completely fine with your life as it is, you've lost touch with that God. 
Because God is always working on us. He's always encouraging us. But isn't it amazing? Yes, there are times the word of God seems critical to us, right? But man, isn't it amazing? You read a critical verse or what you perceive as a critical verse. Then you read some more and you find out, man, look at how much he loved me. Look at how much grace he's given to me. Look, he says, I need to do this, but he's given me the ability to do it already. Man, Christ is the greatest coach that we can learn from. So how do we speak life-giving words? Very quickly. Running short on time, but very quickly. How do we speak life-giving words? Two practical examples. Number one, if you can't say something helpful, skip it. If you can't say something helpful, skip it. This is so simple, but yet rarely applied. I truly believe so many conflicts, hurt feelings, and fights could be avoided if we focused on speaking things that are actually helpful, not hurtful. I grew up with the Bambi way of speaking. You guys know what I'm talking about? The Bambi way of speaking. If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. I used to think that. If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. However, a couple years ago, I heard someone say, if you can't say something nice, try harder. <laughs> I love that. We used to think, if I can't say something nice, don't just keep quiet. No, no, no. If you can't say something nice, try harder. Work on that. I love that. If you can't say something nice, try harder. This is where someone in the crowd asks, okay, but what about when somebody does something stupid at work or at home? I have to acknowledge it, right? I have to acknowledge it was dumb, right? I got to acknowledge this person screwed up. I got to acknowledge this person blew it. But again, if somebody messes up at work, culture says, hey, there's a great opportunity to really blast them, to really make yourself look good and them look really bad because you didn't do it. I've, I've noticed in our society, and by the way, listen, guys, I'm telling you, I've, I've been guilty of this in the past, and I'm tempted to be guilty of it today, and I'll be tempted tomorrow. But I've seen this stuff, whether on social media or other places, like, like we enjoy pointing out people's failures. And we make it humorous so it's not as big a deal. Look at how stupid this person was. <laughs> and then we move on. And you don't realize... You just stole some life. You just, you just ripped some life there. And isn't it amazing? We want to do that to other people, but when we blow it, we hope nobody notices. Anybody ever go like rollerblading when they were kids, roller skating, whatever? Okay. Remember roller rinks? Remember roller rinks with the wood floor, big circle? Okay. I don't know if anyone does this anymore. Okay. I did it all the time when I was in high school. And we used to go to a place when I lived in Detroit, went to a place in Roseville. And uh, I don't remember the name of it now. But anyway, it was this, what's that? Oh, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. It was a big one. It was always full. Uh, go Roseville. Yeah, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, got some love for Roseville. Okay. Uh, we used to go there when I was in high school with some friends. And it was always packed. And you're always going the same direction, right? Everyone's going around and running around. Well, once you go around a few times, you start getting a little daring. Like, I could try this foot-over-foot foot thing with rollerblades going around the corner at like 60 miles an hour, or so it felt. And then what happens when you got it all down, you're being cool, you know, the girls are behind you, bam, you just wipe out. And as soon as you hit, what's the first thing you do? Who saw that, right? Did anyone, did that girl that I thought was cute, did she notice that? And you get up real quick, right? Like, ah, oh, no, that's 
cool, cool, okay. Just going to stand here for a minute, catch my breath, okay. We're so worried about other people seeing our failures. That doesn't go away when we get older, by the way. And so here we are. We love to point out other people's failures and laugh at it. I mean, actually make jokes about it. And I'm not talking about the silly little things that we all kind of, you know, a little kid does something funny or whatever. That's different. I'm talking when somebody really has a failure and we think it's so hilarious. And then we share it with other people. That's just a silly example, but it's one we got to think about. Man, how could I help this person at work who blew it to not make that mistake again? How can I come alongside them? And by the way, be a coach, not just point out they did something dumb, but how to help them and encourage them. Listen, when I worked at the, at the hardware store I worked at, I made some big bloopers, okay? Mixing paint, you think would be super easy. Not so much. There's a few times where you mix the thing up with vanilla, you're like, that's not the right color. I did that with three five-gallon buckets, okay? I'm telling you, blew it. That's a lot of money sitting right there. Now, luckily, the guy said, well, I paint apartments. I could use it for something. I'll take it. I'll buy it anyway, but I need three more like this. <sighs> okay, praise the Lord, Adonai, okay? But I loved it because there was an older guy that worked there. His name was Rick. And I went back there and I was like, dude, I just blew it. This is before I knew the guy was going to buy it. I said, I just blew it. Three, five gallon, totally wrong color. It was supposed to be this. And it turned like a yellowy kind of color. I don't even know how to happen, man. I don't even know what's going on. I put the thing, I don't know. You know what's funny? He kind of chuckled. He said, oh, man, I did that one time. It cost the store about $400 what I blew up, what I messed up, when I blew it. Let's go see if we can figure it out. Do you know how good I felt after that moment? This guy could have ripped. This guy knew everything about everything. Okay, you bring in plumbing. I need this and this to connect. I don't know how. Let's see what we can do. 15 minutes, he's got you all set, taken care of. Electrical. The guy was a genius. He could have obliterated me. By the way, he was my boss. But he just kind of, oh man, yeah, I've been there. Let's go see if we can figure this out. So much more helpful. So we can acknowledge something was done wrong, but be helpful, not hurtful. I need to put in the extra work and think about it. I need to think about what I'm saying and how it affects other people. And is this helpful or hurtful? Two things to think about when you're thinking about is this helpful or hurtful. Here's how I can think about it for me. Number one, how would I want to be talked to in that moment of mistake? How would I want someone to talk to me when I blow it? I want them to be honest and real and up forth or upright and, uh, you know, forthright and say, this is what's going to happen. And here it is. I want the honesty, but I don't want someone to be a jerk about it. Right? I want someone to be understanding to a certain degree and acknowledge it was wrong, but here we can move on. But number two, what is going to be the most helpful to them to not repeat that mistake? How do I want to be talked to in that situation? What's going to help them not make the mistake again? We should strive to speak life, or as Paul says it, let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Philippians chapter 4, verse 29, the New Living Translation. So if you think something, or if you can't say something helpful, skip it or try harder, okay? And if you think something good, say it. If you think something good, say it. Proverbs chapter 16, one more verse, and then we're going to close. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 24. The Bible says this, Proverbs 16, 24. 
Pleasant words are as a honeycomb, sweet to the soul. Again, just like those words can pierce, you ever have a word that was just, I mean, it was actually sweet to your soul. It was, it, it was tasted good. I mean, it was, I don't know how to describe it. It was just pleasant. Then he says, and health to the bones. I mean, it's, it's encouraging. It's strengthening. When somebody speaks something helpful. So when you think something good, say it. We tend to speak the critical thoughts that come to our mind while holding back the good ones. Now, again, let's be real for a second because I want to be honest because the other side of the coin isn't necessarily good either. This isn't about flattering someone or trying to make someone think it's all about them. The Bible actually speaks against flattery, doesn't it? We're not supposed to flatter one another. We're supposed to encourage one another. Culture flatters. Christians encourage Culture flatters you. Why would culture or the world try to flatter you? To make you think you're all that. Why? So I can get something from you. If you think I like you, you'll do what I ask you to do. If you think I'm all for you, you'll do what I ask you to do. It's manipulation. We don't do that. We encourage. Why do we encourage? Just to encourage. I heard a guy talking about how he speaks to his daughter. And it's not anyone in our church or anyone that anyone here would know, but it's someone that I listen to on a semi-regular basis. And he said he was talking about how he speaks to his daughter. And he says when he talks to his daughter, he says that when God created her, and he does this to be encouraging, that God told the angels he was going to show off. So he gathered all the angels around and said, okay, I'm going I'm to really show off right now. Everyone gather around. And then he made her. Now, he's told her that since she was a child. Now, why is he telling her that? Because he wants her to know she is special, unique. Is there anything wrong with wanting your child to know they're special and unique? No. Is it true that God gathered all the angels around for one individual creation and said, come here, watch this, I'm going to show off, and I'm going to make this one little girl? No. So what's this girl think right now about when she was created? Man, I'm so special, all of creation was created, and then I was a special side thing that was God created all on its own with all the angels watching, giving praise and glory because I'm so awesome. Do you see how quickly we go from encouraging to flattering? And we create these mindsets in ourselves and others. I get that the dad's desire to encourage his daughter. I love that. But the truth is you can express the same thought without making it all about them. You can tell your child they are completely unique and a wonderful creation of God without making it all about them because the Bible says we all are fearfully and wonderfully made. We don't have to make it all about them. We make it all about him and his power to create, and that's what makes us special. That's what makes humanity sacred. That's the only thing in all of humanity that makes all of us have worth is we were all created by God. It's not your looks, your talent, your checkbook, any of that. None of that matters. You're special. You're unique. You're beautiful because God created you. Whether you think you are or not, whether you compare yourself to someone else who you think is better and they're not, you're special and unique. Not the kind of special we tell, you know, like Vic's special. Not that kind of special, okay? See, now let me tell you, I can do that. Why? Because Vic and I, have a relationship. And he, don't, don't act foolish now, no. 
See, I know I can, we can joke like that. He knows my heart. I know his heart. He doesn't go, oh, I'm so offended Pastor John said that. Well, he will say he is now to get attention from everybody, but he doesn't really mean that, okay? <laughs> Man, we can be so encouraging without being egocentric. And isn't our culture egocentric? I've said it before. You have an entire web page dedicated to you if you have Facebook. You have an entire web page that people like and follow about you. I have one too, okay? I'm just saying, that's how our culture is. There is nothing wrong with telling someone they did well or you're proud of them. The line we cross is when we start layering on things that aren't true in order to flatter them. You can tell someone you're such a talented singer and you sing in such a way that God uses it to really bless me. That's encouraging. Telling someone You're the best singer I have ever heard. No, really, you're better than any other singer I've ever heard on the radio. Like, you should have your own CD. You're that. You're the best singer ever. There's no one that sings as good as you. We've crossed the line. Do you know why all these people go to American Idol auditions and, like, fail miserably? Because people, I'm just being honest, people lied to them. You're the best singer ever. Why? No. It's okay to say, Man, you have a gift for singing, and I pray God would use that for his glory. But when we build people up with all these false things, do you know what you're doing? You're setting them up for failure. You can encourage your children. You can love on them and support them and let them know that they have this gift or talent, and it's good, and, man, they're doing a good job in this. But listen, there was a dad, Mr. Ball in the NBA. Remember this guy a couple years ago? His son was in high school, and he said he's better than Steph Curry. And he would beat Steph Curry one-on-one as like a junior or senior in high school. Okay, that's crossing a line. Hey, you're a great ball player. You've got great potential here. You could really go to the NBA, and I pray God would use that for his glory. Let's work at that. Why even bring the other comparison into it? So you've got to be careful. Encourage, not flatter. So two things, real quick. We're going to close in prayer. We are so over How to speak life-giving words. If you can't say something helpful, skip it or try harder. And if you think something good, say it. Small adjustments to our words will create the big difference in our lives. So what type of words are you speaking? Life-giving or life-taking? Life-giving or life-taking? I want to encourage you to stand with me. We're going to pray as the band comes and leads us in a song of invitation. As you stand right there where you are, we're just going to pray and open up a time of response to the Lord to move. And so would you bow with me in a word of prayer as you stand right there where you are? And let's ask the Lord to bless this time as we respond to him. Father, we pray that in this area of our words we speak, that you would give us great wisdom and understanding, that you, Holy Spirit, would lead us and guide us, that our words would be helpful and encouraging Lord, that grace would flow from our words, that it would encourage those that hear them. Lord, again, it's not flattery. It's not just, as the culture would do, trying to layer it on so we can manipulate someone to do what we want because they think we're for them. Lord, that's so fake. It's not about being fake. It's about genuinely saying the words that we think. And we're going to think encouraging thoughts if our thoughts are fixed on heavenly things. So help us to be encouraging this week to speak life-giving words, not just to others, but to ourselves. Again, Lord, we, yes, there are times 
we need to be critical of something that's in our life. We need to address it pointedly with Scripture. But I believe even there, when we look at your word, we can address it and say, yes, this isn't what we need to be doing. But praise God for his grace that it comes alongside in comforts. I love that your word can split us open to the very depths of our soul. It opens us up. But yet your word is also that soothing and healing balm that is applied to us that brings healing to our hearts. And so, Lord, may we worship you this morning. May you lead, guide, and direct. And if somebody here is battling in this area, that they would come to you for help, for encouragement and strength to speak life-giving words, not life-taking. Lord, for myself, I know I struggle with this. I pray, Lord, you'd help me in this area. I pray you'd give me strength and wisdom to notice the words I'm going to say before I say them. Help me to think about what I'm going to say, Lord. And may my words glorify you. If anyone here is struggling and failing in this area, I pray they would know that they can be forgiven today. Lord, thank you for your grace. If someone here doesn't know you as their Savior, I pray they'd come to know you by accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You alone is the way to heaven. Not religion or good works. May we trust in you, repent of our sins, believe that you died on the cross for our sins, were buried and rose again. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a a verse of this song and then maybe the chorus and we'll go from there and see how the time goes. But if you want to respond this morning, would you come? You want help with your words? Ask God to help you with your words and to think about those things. You want someone to pray with you? Come and join in prayer as we respond to him this morning.